Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm Claire McKeever Burgett, and this is my last podcast as host of this most beautiful and sacred space. I ended my time on Academy staff back in February and pre-recorded this episode to make sure it would release in April. Thank you for journeying with us as our faithful podcast listeners. The Academy will take a break from the podcast to reevaluate its place within the Academy ministry, and we'll be in touch with you as new and different plans develop. Until then, please remain connected with the Academy by following along on social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, visiting Academy website at academy.upperroom.org, or by giving a gift to support the ongoing work of creating transformative space online and in person for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. This podcast and other expressions of the Academy ministry only exist because of generous donors like you. A gift of 25, 50, or any amount to ensure Academy work continues for many years to come is greatly appreciated. Visit us at academy.upperroom.org and click the orange donate button to give a gift today. Today's conversation features Christopher Carter, Assistant Professor and Assistant Chair and Department Diversity Officer in Theology and Religious Studies at University of San Diego. Christopher's teaching and research focuses on philosophical and theological ethics, Black and womanist theological ethics, environmental ethics, and animals and religion. He approaches religious studies as a liberation ethicist committed to exploring how the moral economy of U.S. religious thought and culture impact the everyday lives of marginalized populations, particularly African-American and Latinx communities. He is active in the leadership of the American Academy of Religion, where he serves as a steering committee member of both the Religion and Ecology and the Animals and Religion groups. Professor Carter is also a pastor within the United Methodist Church and currently serves as an assistant pastor at Pacific Beach United Methodist Church. He is married and together with his spouse, they have one child, Isaiah. We at the Academy got to know Christopher through Frank Rogers, longtime Academy faculty and advisory board member who taught Christopher as a PhD student at Claremont School of Theology several years ago. Christopher served as faculty for one of the Academy Day Apart Retreats in fall 2020, and we hope to learn alongside him again soon. The first 20 or so minutes of our conversation, which took place in November 2020, is us just diving right in to all things parenting in the pandemic, which, believe it or not, has so much to do with being spiritually formed. I decided to leave this part in because of the wisdom Christopher shares and because sometimes leaving a thing as is proves to be the best thing. I hope you enjoy our conversation that begins with parenting and ends with Howard Thurman and is interlaced with wisdom, laughter, and joy throughout. Listen on, beloveds. Listen well. Listen deep. Listen wide. The pandemic has exposed the inadequacies of our um I won't say childcare isn't the right word I'm looking for. The way we um, do or try to incorporate care for children and work 
Yes. Right. In this country, yes. it's totally, you see how it's, it's, it's structured that to be totally dependent upon school, which is a flaw when you have kids who are not in school, right. You know what I'm saying? Right. In that age. So, I mean, it's, right. it's, 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 it's just poorly structured mm-hmm. to benefit those who have enough money to afford like a nanny or to afford like. Right. Or daycare. But instead of actually use bank time with your kid, right. I mean, it's all screwed up. Right. And then employers who, I mean, in large part, just pretend like people are not parents at all uh, or, or want us to, you know, I mean, that has not been my experience, but the things that I have read, um, you're just supposed to pretend like, you know, there aren't children running at your feet. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, no, I, so uh, my meeting today was with the American Academy of Religion and yeah. Isaiah, like we're sitting there, um, and Isaiah, I was on the meeting and Isaiah's like comes over to me, gets in his chair. So I know he's hungry. Like that's what he does. He climbs in his chair and he's like, all right, I'm ready to mm-hmm. eat. I'm like, all right. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm like, hey, I'm here. I can I have my my wireless earbuds on, but I'm you're gonna see Isaiah on the camera and not me because we're sitting at the table. I need to get him food. <laughs> so right. you know, and that's 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 my life right now. So Right. Well, and um, you know, I my husband and I have talked a lot about how um, sadly, like my husband works at Vanderbilt University and um, he's staff. So he, he does um, higher ed administration and, um, but he sits on a, I don't even know what it's called, but like staff support committee or whatever. And they help, you know, shape and influence uh, policies. And the sad thing is, is that until people like you, Adam, um, sit on these committees and also begin to advocate for family leave, like, it won't change, <laughs> um, you know, that like we have to have just as many dads going in there, you know, saying, I want time. I need time. This is important, you know, as we do, as we do moms. And um, anyway, and then, I mean, he agrees and we're working on that together, but yeah, it's, yeah. I, the word I keep you like the early on everybody about the pandemic was using the word uncertain times, uncertain times. I was like, for me, I was just like, well, we, times are always uncertain. Like the fact that any of us have ever thought anything was certain was a misnomer, you know, but for me, the word that's just come is that it's just been a really revealing year. Um, just kind of like pulling back the layers more and more and, on all, on all the things, on all the systems, on all the, it's like our uh, daughter Liv is one of those children that is in everything and finds every insecurity in our home. So like every base, you know, every um, shoe mold that isn't perfectly glued or every, I mean, and, you know, and just goes and like rips it out and we're like, well, damn, now we have to go get you know, the, <laughs> the wood glue and glue that down or, I mean, Oh gosh, every little thing. And, but I think, uh, you know, to use that metaphor, it's like, that's for me, what a lot of this year has been is just every kind of crack um, has then just continued to be revealed and continue to kind of get bigger. Uh, There's, there's a sermon series there actually on uh, privilege in terms of, um, because that's that's what you're talking about, right? Because I think, um, people that are marginalized times have always been uncertain. Like they've never, mm-hmm. it's never not been uncertain. What mm-hmm. happens is you develop the re- resiliency to 
to live within and if you're fortunate enough to thrive within the uncertainty right mm-hmm. um and that i think is what sets apart um folk who have a, a kind of a deep what i would say is like like a deep well of wisdom they can lean into and glean from versus folk who live with the as you said kind of the imaginative um you know idea that things are much but they're in control right, right. and and what this has revealed is that there's actually so much we don't control um and and so you know and that is a, and that, that 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 transcends a certain degree race um but it's definitely wrapped up in not a class privilege, you know? Um, and, 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 and I think for me, that's been something that's been very, very telling because again, I don't, this time has been very, I think you're appropriately framing it. It's been very, very revealing rather than in addition to the uncertainty that has always existed. Um, I, I think that uncertainty has been part of the reason why there's been so many white people, and people of privilege that have been activated for issues of social justice, because now they're getting a taste of what it's like to be in, in living with uncertainty in a way in which they're having to recognize and be confronted with, they haven't otherwise had to do so. And so now they're much more attuned to other people's suffering um, because they're like, well, I, I hate feeling this way, right? I don't want them to feel this way either, right? You know what I'm saying? And so there's this kind of empathic component mm-hmm. to what's, that they have now that they otherwise, they haven't had in, you know, for a long time so yeah. um anyway i know she was recording so i was like maybe you can use that somewhere <laughs> i will um i'll do some editing magic do some editing. i was like i was like oh yeah i was like that's kind of a good well because we, we because I, I i'm just always i am forever annoyed by um the ways and, and it's it's so funny that you brought because to me this is i know this is not we're supposed to talk about but it's so tied to parenting Parenting. Oh, no, I have mm-hmm. a, I added a question about parenting. So oh, okay. there. Yeah, <laughs> because 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 it, because parenting, what it exposes is that you don't have as much control as you think, and then you have the parents who try to force their kids into this particular kind of way of being in the world, and all the kind of harm that does. But parenting, more than anything else, really exposes how much you can't control and how much you just hope and you guide and you steer and you lead, but it's Ugh. not in your direct control. That's and right. so it's an excellent metaphor when you're thinking about kind of what we're living through, what we're experiencing. Um, and, and it's been very revealing to me in terms of how, um, my approach to my life, my portion of my spirituality has deeply influenced my approach to how I, um, raise Isaiah and the kind of, uh, person I want him to be and, and the kind of parent I try to be, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't mean it's perfect. I don't think any, obviously no one is, but I think that it definitely has shaped the language I use around him, my expectations of what they might be. And also the compassion. I have of myself because apparently uh what'd you say your daughter's name what, what was her name Liv Liv yeah apparently her and Isaiah are some kind of connection because I mean he is so he's almost three feet tall and he's again just one and a half so he's yeah so he's super tall he can he's been able to open doors for like mm-hmm. I don't know for several months and he can just get into everything and so we've had to lock things up and try to do that and I saw the other morning <laughs> he had gotten a pair of keys and was sticking it into the where the lock goes because you, you have to use a screwdriver uh-huh. to unlock it. But he had saw us do it so much. He was like, I think if I just put this in there and turn it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is uh-huh. ridiculous. <laughs> so I was like, this is where my life is is at right now. So um, I know. Well, and, and Liv sees everything her older brother does and wants to do it. And, 
you know, our first child, Wade, he, um, Mr. Cautious, uh, you know, a very, I mean, just kind of sit down, read a book, read me another book. We can't get Liv to read a book to save our lives. I mean, if we are not moving with her around the room, like, here's what an elephant looks like or whatever, you know, please, you know, you have to know what an elephant sounds like or whatever. Um, she won't pay attention to it. And so I mean, we're just like these, like, okay, we'll just follow you around. And oh my gosh, it's a mess. But I mean, I, I spent my entire therapy session this morning talking about parenting. I mean, that is how kind of real it is for me right now. And of course, compounded by the fact of, of quarantining, but, um, just exactly what you're saying it's for me it feels like this really fine line between setting boundaries and holding some expectations so that they do have a sense of this is what we value this is you know what we're interested in this is kind of the vision that we're working toward uh together as a family and in the world and like you're your own person (laughs) and i don't get to control you and you know, Wade comes in and says, I don't want to do church because all you do is sing boring songs and talk about love. (laughs) I mean, he said that on Sunday morning and I'm like, and thank God my husband goes, well, at least you know what we're talking about. (laughs) Yes, that's true. He knows what we're talking about. He don't want anything to do with it. But anyway, so yeah, it's, Man, my natural, my first question was, wow, what's wrong with love? I get the boring songs. I get that. But I'm like, love is kind of, that's kind of a cool thing to talk about. So anyway, it is. He's, um, it's all about individuating and differentiating and whatever y'all think is interesting. I do not, you know, I mean, at least in that moment, that's what that was about. Um, Whatever he can control and whatever little bit of power he has, right? He's going to, He's going to try really hard to exercise it. But anyway, um, yeah, we are just diving in. I love it. Yeah, no, I'm glad. <laughs> you know, this is, we can, this is the last thing I'll say, and then we can move over to the actual, whatever the questions you have set up. But I think what I've learned is a couple of things with regard to the pandemic and parenting. One, how important community is and yeah. how much. like you're like man you really need to do this with other people and this is really made it's exposed that it's revealed that like you know trying to do this stuff on your own or in these small units is just extremely difficult and I'm like man and then secondly like you have to have people to talk to about it and and, um that are you you kind of have similar approaches to parenting with right because I have a one friend um and we we really approach things differently with regards to how we parent and it's, it's become obvious. And, and some of this is wrapped up in like norms, like class norms, white norms. Like I grew up in a community where like everybody parented everybody's kid. And that's just like, that was what happened. So you told it. So if somebody else's mom told me what to do or what not to do, I listened and I called them Mrs. So-and-so, not by their first name, by their last name. I said, yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. That's mm-hmm. how I, I still say, yes, sir. Like I was walking with another dude and I saw this old man say, yes, sir. Like that's, that's what I do. Cause that's, uh-huh. that's, that's appropriate. That's proper, man. <laughs> like that's, that's, yeah. You know? um, and, and, and so with my, one of my friends, you know, everything when they talk about um, what's happening right now 
is uh, with regard to parenting is, oh, everything's great. Nothing's wrong. Everything's perfect. And I'm just like, that's not true. You know, like how they frame it, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. they don't, and, 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 and like you need to, a part of being in the community about this stuff is being able to be authentic and being mm-hmm. able to lament some things that you've lost as we, when you, because this was our first child. Like there's some stuff that I've lost that I'm like, man, I think it's okay for me to grieve this because it's not, I'm, the, I'm not the totality of just me being a parent. I don't feel guilty or shame or any of that. It's just a part of it. And that's not normal, I think, for certain class cultures in terms of how you think you should perform parenting right in terms of the way you project into the world versus how you actually are um Mm -hmm. and so anyway it's definitely something i've been like thinking a lot about um because people are you know people that i really love think this way i'm just like man i just don't that doesn't it doesn't feel right i'm not you know i'm not reading any parenting books out of this stuff i just know i'm like that doesn't seem like a healthy way to be so well don't you think i mean I think culture class has a lot to do with it. Yes. And just regard for me, the regardless of all of those things, the people who are willing to do a deep dive, right. Kind of, you know, the way I think of it is those who are willing to kind of swim in the depths of the ocean, like are the ones who, can show up and be like, it was a really shitty day with my kid, you know? And, um, or can say like, I need help. Like I am out of my league. I do not know how to do this. And, and I'm the first to admit like that right there is hard. Cause it's like, I like to think I know how to do everything, <laughs> you know, and sort of, and there are moments where I have to look at my husband, particularly right now, because it's the two, like you said, I mean, our community is sort of, I mean, we have it, but it's, we're not all together because of the pandemic, but you know, where I go, I, I have, I need your help. Like I, my patience is done. And if I keep talking right now, I am going to do harm. Like, I mean, that is like a very real, whew. Um, but I guess I'm just saying like the people and the parents that I'm um, able to hang with, I guess the most are the ones who are just like, this is just, you know, really hard and I'm not perfect at it. And I don't know. And, and in my experience, it's across kind of culture class in many ways. I mean, if I'm, you know, thinking about it and the, the commonality, the common thread are the people who are, deeply introspective Mm -hmm. um in other in their whole of life Uh, anyway um, no i think i I think you're right i I think you're right you know because there's a way in which you can be introspective into your own like specialization or your vocation and not really apply all that to yourself right yeah because of what because of what that will expose what it brings up to you and you have you have to deal with it and confront confront it um you know, I I completely agree that that's that that is the through line. It's can you be vulnerable enough to be honest with what's going on and not have a sense of shame or guilt, but just being like, no, this is just a part of what it means to be human and to try and figure out how to do this thing that you unfortunately there is no book on how to be a parent. Every kid is different, and so you just have to kind of figure it out. And and I have one hundred percent. I mean, I'm very Isaiah is a pretty good kid. You know, we've been fortunate. You know, like he. 
and the things that I don't know if this has happened to you yet, but I'm sure it has. The things he does that get on my nerves are the things that I do that I'm like, yep, that, or you know. So I see myself and I'm Absolutely. like, yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm like, I can't get mad at you for doing the things. I <laughs> know, I know, I'm like, yeah, like, you know, we have to figure out how to work with that when other people work with me. So you know, okay. that's that's kind of how I've been able to kind of put it together. But um, no, this is, yeah, I I, I agree that vulnerability. It's so key, and, and and this is what I think. I'm wondering how we come out of this pandemic, how it's going to continue to reshape community, because I do think some of us have been able to kind of have this awareness or this awakening during this moment. Um, and what does that go? How does that change how we have relationships moving forward, and what we really value, or are we going to kind of go back to the way things were, um, or to try to pursue a vision of what we think they more rather than um trying to move forward i i don't know i think it's a particularly a, a important question for religious communities but for community in general um and i think with respect to parenting and, and like you said with your husband and the kind of things that we can begin to change in institutions um this has you're right i mean it's it's like it's like revelation in the truest sense right like literally the like it's showing you the real right it's yeah. really showing you the real and, and, and so are we going to what are we going to do about it now right yeah. what are, how are we going to respond rather than just react yeah yeah this has been a fruitful conversation well, for me already. So I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm like, this is this is good, dude. I'm like, I'm, I'm digging this. I love it. Well, you know, we are here um, to create sacred space, and that's what I'm trying to be about on this podcast as well. Just um, for folks to come together and have real conversation, and um, we do that uh, together and um, through just you know lots of good good humor and kindness. And so thanks for, for joining me today. Um, I do, you mentioned just kind of a, um, growing up and something about, you know, manners and yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Uh, which is funny because I grew up similarly. Um, we did not say yeah at all in any of our responses. Um, and, and so in my uh, parenting, uh, we are a little more lax on that, um, probably than my parents would, would prefer. <laughs> and I've had some conversations about that. Um, but yeah, so I'll just say I'm, I'm connecting that to, to my kind of first question that I tend to start with with, with folks is, um, you know, what um, and who do you come from? Uh, and, and sort of what are the, what's the geographical landscape of your faith and of your life look like? So, so tell us about that. And I think that's actually the perfect segue because <laughs> I, I'm imagining, so my grandmother uh, has passed away since she passed away in, in um, 2005 before I went to seminary. Uh, but, and I'll say more about her in a moment, but I, I know if she were alive, uh, and my grandfather still is alive my, my, on the maternal side. Um, they would, if Isaiah was ever around them, he would have to say, yes, sir. And yes, ma'am. Like that's just, that's just, you know, and even when he goes visit my mother, like that's just embedded in our culture. Um, and so some of that's Southern. And so my, my, my family um, lineage in many ways is rooted in Mississippi and Louisiana. 
um, my dad or my dad's side of family is from um, Hammond, Louisiana. So just on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain in, in Louisiana, outside New Orleans. Uh, and my mom's side of family is from Brookhaven, Mississippi, which is just outside Jackson. And very much of that kind of, you know, um, they were a part, my grandparents uh, were a part of that northern migration on my mom's side, um, where people just kind of left the south. My grandpa had a very crazy story about leaving. Um, basically, he was threatened <laughs> by a guy he was working for uh, that he was going to kill him if he left because my grandpa was a really good worker, farm worker. And so my grandpa like snuck out basically in the middle of the night and took a train and sent for my grandmother later. And that's how they ended up in Michigan. Uh, and which is insane. Like he had planned on staying in Mississippi and buying his own land and farming. Um, and so I think uh, for me, when I think about the landscape of my, kind of my life and my faith, it has that kind of intersection of both Midwestern and Southern, uh, both traditional because I spent so much time um, with my grandparents being raised by them and because my situation is growing up with my mom, um, having been divorced a few times. Um, and, and so all that's kind of mixed up into give, making me what people in my previous congregations have called me an old soul, you know, when I got somewhere, that, you know, I was a senior pastor and I was 29 years old and I'm talking to these people that are like in their sixties and seventies and, um, trying to connect with them and found myself really able to connect with them in part because of how, um, because of what they taught me and they instilled in me this kind of uh, historical wisdom from their own experiences growing up in the South and growing up poor um, and, and knowing how um, faith was a part of how they were able to survive and make sense of themselves in the world in the midst of their suffering. Um, and it gave me a kind of rootedness and a groundedness and a, um, a kind of a curiosity, but also a stability that I think was unique for someone that was my age. You know, I've always kind of known that. Um, and, and so, so yeah, I think um, that's kind of a little bit about how I got here. Very Midwestern, very polite, very Southern in the same ways I talk about politeness. Um, and yet I try to push the envelope and be more inclusive in terms of who, towards whom an authentic politeness can extend, right? Because that, that kind of, especially when I'm talking about, and this is, I, I would say this as someone who spends much time in the South, that politeness can, can cover up a, a veneer of, well, you're not really, I'm polite to you, but I'm, you're not really welcome in a space, right? So it doesn't mean to actually really welcome people of, of deep difference, um, rather than just kind of have that superficial politeness. And so that's kind of how I think that drives a lot of, my thinking and my writing and, and my being. Yeah. How do we extend welcome to people who are of deep, deep difference with us? What's that yeah, look so like? Yeah. This has been a, for me, a challenge I've kind of wrestled with a lot of my life. Um, but not, not because of, I guess, some of that's being black but also some of that's playing sports and being pretty good and having to work with people. By that, I mean literally playing on teams with people I don't like. And then other parts of it actually um, have been more exposed in the recent politics. And so I say all that stuff to say, like it's, I, it's, it's things I think we can begin to 
where I think I began to think about as a child, as a young person, right? I'm, I'm very different um, in many ways, uh, or I was very different, I should say, in many ways from the other kids who were playing high-level AAU basketball, um, which at that point in my life, I was much more athletic and a little bit better, well, not even a little bit, substantially better shape. <laughs> my knees didn't hurt when I got up in the morning, so I was able to jump quite high, those kinds of things. Um, and so what I, what I found myself was in these conversations with people who just, uh, or had to be in an important relationship with people at, at a, what I would say at a young age, or I had to trust them to do what they're supposed to do, even though I didn't really like them because of their own particular kind of beliefs about other people, particularly women um, and, and things of that nature. And so that kind of planted the seeds in me of how do you talk to people and find common ground and commonality where you can create a relationship with? Because that's so important in team sports, especially a sport like basketball, where you only have a few people, right? Um, and so I took what I learned, which I didn't, I wouldn't have, if you would ask me, this is what I was doing when I was 12 to 17 playing AAU travel ball, I would have not told you this is what was happening. But in hindsight, what I, what I realized is the importance of trying to find the ways in which not only just common ground, but trying to see where people are human. I think that's what I tried to do, you know, is really to see, you know, not trying to prejudge them, but trying to say, okay, where is their humanness and where might we connect? And for me, that's been the way I've historically been able to do it. So whether it be me, um, you know, going to a church and being appointed a senior pastor when I'm 29 and having the majority of my church being really, really old, um, you know, uh, it, it was trying to find or looking for the places where our humanity could be, um, where I could see them as free human beings and connect on that kind of intimate level. Um, and and that, that really takes, I think, an openness and a kind of curiosity to knowing their story, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. for example, when I was a, a pastor, so many members of my church in Compton, California, were from Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas. They all migrated from the South, right? Mm. And so we had all this stuff in common about the foods we ate, the conversations that we would kind of have, just common vernacular sayings that I could say there and they would be, and, and they knew what I meant. And that helped us create a particular kind of community. Um, and, and so that to me was just a beautiful thing, right? And, and interestingly enough, I mean, they put me in this, this church in Compton because they were like, oh, he's going to revitalize it. And when, think people, when people say revitalization, they automatically assume, make it younger. That's not mm -hmm. what happened. So mm -hmm. I'm in this church for three years and the church does grow pro go, like more than doubles, but it's all people who are still older <laughs> because that's who's already there. And yeah. that was fine with me. I was like, that isn't, you know, I hate that we have to try to dis discard people because they're like 65, like they don't matter or count anymore. And I think that's just, that's that, that kind of ageism really bothers me. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I think about that reply, talking about to like people with different, politics it's the same kind of approach claire it's l being curious about their story and understanding that if i had lived through their experience i might think the same kinds of things they do right mm -hmm. and so when i think about the people when i go in louisiana and i visit in the south um and my family and people who aren't my family who are like for instance on the other political spectrum who are very conservative politically um I ask them about, you know, we just talk about their experience, what they've been through. And, and I see that kind of economic pain they have. The, and I, I shouldn't even say, say that. I see that they feel as though they haven't been heard. Yeah. 
that's their that that's so much of what it is people feel as though they haven't been heard. And so for me, the the way I start to create those conversations and relationships is to really listen to people, actually get at what's underneath all the the because superficial stuff is all that anger and, and all that rhetoric. Underneath that is something where I think we can actually talk about um, vulnerability and connectedness because because I I don't I don't I don't I don't want to not be seen either. Right. I know what it's like to feel like I've been invisible. I'm a black man. Right. And so I know that that's difficult for them, even though their understanding of invisibility is not nearly the same. um, Doesn't carry the same kind of weight and consequences that mine does. I still know that that feels crappy. And so I don't want to dehumanize them as a way to create conversation. That's not going to do the trick. Um, And I still have to hold them accountable for their beliefs and their actions. But that had for that to happen, there has to be some trust there first. I have to be I have to be open to also being to learning from them and being able to change. Um, yeah. So this isn't a one way street, right? This is not in that. So anyway, that was a very long answer. I apologize, but that's kind no, of you know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot there, and I'm I'm thinking. Um, I, I know in my experience, like I don't just like wake up compassionate. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't just like get out of bed and I'm like I mean it it I, in saying that I'm being really honest about I have to practice it like I have to um cultivate it so I'm curious what does it look like to practice it and cultivate it so that when you do show up in these conversations you can actually listen um and be open to change because again you know i'm just talking from my own (laughs) my own place like i don't just like naturally kind of come that way um and i do recognize there's personality there's i mean all kinds of things that (laughs) that go along with that um but i guess for for me i have to work um at it a little bit more and so i'm curious like do you feel like it's work for you or yeah what what does it look like for you this is gonna sound bad. <laughs> so, what purpose am I saying that? Um, I have two answers. For me, um, generally speaking, it's not work, but a lot of that, and we can go back to this if you want to. Um, a lot of that comes from my own particular childhood and the role I had in the household I have, and oldest of four. And I, again, I mentioned my mother. You know, the kind of we had a complex, I had a complex childhood. And so there's a way in which I've always kind of had to be responsible for and care for others for the most part of my entire life. And I, and I have found that um, that seems to be a better way to, um, I've always wanted to connect with people, I think because I haven't always had stable connections, you know? And so for me, I think that's kind of, that's that's a, a wound that has turned into um something that has helped me in terms of the rest of my life, even though I fully understand it's a woundedness and can be manipulated by others and has been, um, you know? Um, and I think a lot of clergy probably have, s- some of us go into the thing, going to practicing um, being clergy because of that, that wound, right? So that's one thing I wanna be honest with and saying for me, being compassionate um, has always felt like the right thing to do because I would want someone to do that for me because I've been in situations where I've needed compassion from the time I was like six. Um, And so um, 
And so for, so that, that's a big part of what steeped me in that. At the same time, this past year has been super hard for me to try to actually have any kind of, it's been harder for me to be compassionate towards others because for me, my spiritual practice has been, it's music and exercise. And those, and I, I pray, I do all, I meditate, I do all that stuff. And now that stuff matters and it's helpful. But for me, the most important ones I've always, it, it's embodied practices. This is, I, I, this is again, why I think I was able to, I don't make it sound like I was some kind of super amazing athlete, but I was, that's why I was a good athlete. Um, because for me, it, it was a time where I could be spiritually grounded. It mattered to me. And so I would practice a ridiculous amount because I felt like myself like capital S, true self. And so um, prior to the pandemic, I should even say prior to the birth of my son, Isaiah, I was very active um, exercising, doing you know yoga, lifting weights and doing different kinds of things like that that really helped me feel centered and grounded. Um, I had not been able to keep that up after Isaiah was born, which happens you know, when you have, a, have a, a kid. And then the pandemic happened and I had just started kind of going back <laughs> to, the, to the gym. And so that has made things so much worse because for me, that's a way in which, I, again, it, it is my practice. It is my practice. And so um, I've had to find other things to do um, and what that has been replaced with because what, since I live in San Diego, we're about 45 minutes away from mountains, like smaller mountains that I can go to. I mean, we have actual real mountains in California. And so I, so I do a lot of hiking. I bought a backpack. I slap Isaiah that, that backpack. He likes it. As a, he has his, has some snacks, and we just go up in the woods. Yeah. Um, and he really enjoys it. And I let him out. We can run around is when it's safe and stuff like that. But I've had to find alternative ways to do my spiritual practices in the midst of the pandemic for things that are helpful for me. And as someone who has ADHD, it's always been embodied kind of practices. So the thing I would encourage people to do that are trying to um, practice compassion in that kind of way is you have to first be compassionate for yourself, which means you have to figure out what kind of practices and spiritual practices you have to do and prioritize them as a way f- and understand that's how you are compassionate to others. Don't feel like it's making you being selfish. It's actually refueling you to do the work that you know you want to do, right? It's, it's totally tied to your ability to be compassionate towards others. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned um, your clergy, uh, your professor of ethics and theology um, the University of San Diego. So tell us sort of vocationally how you got there. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever uh, you want to tell us. Um, yeah, no, this, <laughs> the reason I said that <laughs> is because um, I, I would have never imagined in my wildest dreams that I would be where I am. I'm so blessed um, and fortunate. Uh, and while I fully recognize I've done a boatload of work to be where I am, right? So I want to make it sound like this is like, oh, divine intervention. Like, no, I did a bunch of stuff, but, yeah. but um, I've been and created relationships with people that when opportunities presented themselves, I've been able to take advantage of them. And um, it's been a beautiful thing. So. Um, I mentioned my, my family. So my dad's side of family um, is from Louisiana. They're Spanish immigrants, actually. And so my dad's side of family, not until my grandfather married my grandmother, uh, like they were white. And then my grandfather, who was mixed, married my grandmother, who's black. And so there's this interesting dynamic of those folks where I have some people in that side of family who are educated, 
and some people who are not, who are still kind of rural farm workers or have regular day, like, you know, um, I guess what's their term people are using working class. Um, unfortunately, because my mom and my birth father got divorced when I was two, I didn't really know them until I was an adult. So I was raised mostly around people who were super like working class, like low, like basically poor. I remember around a lot of poor people and for the most part in and out of poverty personally until I was in the um, junior high. Mm -hmm. I saw that to say I was a below average student in high school. I didn't go to college right away and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I, my wife really encouraged me after I got married young, very Midwestern, very Southern thing to do. I got married when I was 22. We're still married. It's, it'll be, it's over, oh, let's wow. see, we've been together for 21 years in January, which is insane. Um, and um, she really encouraged me to go to college. And she, um, my wife is brilliant. She's a veterinary uh, who specializes in veterinary oncology, right? So she specializes in cancer. So she's like crazy smart. Wow. And so she was really encouraging me to go to school. And so when I went back to school and in my early 20s, I found that when I actually applied myself, <laughs> I was actually pretty smart. Uh, and I was so yeah. fortunate that I had, you know, the blessing is clear that I had teachers. And that's part of the reason why I think I became a teacher. I had I had like one teacher every year and I, I wouldn't even have back to back, but I had somebody that were like, man, you should, you're, you're smart. Like, and they would tell me, and they were telling me things that I had never heard from some older white person. Right. And my family would talk about maybe I was smart, but never did I, I'm the first, first person in my family to go to college, to get a bachelor's degree, let alone go to grad school. And so I had these teachers that were like, man, you should, you, you should, you should think about going to graduate school. And I'm like, eh, what's graduate school? Like, I don't know. They, you know I don't know. What, I don't know what this is. Right. You know? right. Um, and so uh, in that process, I've recognized and accepted the call to ministry uh, and realized as Methodist, you have to go to grad school. So that's when I really started learning about grad school. I get a full ride scholarship to do my MDiv. Um, and then I get another full ride scholarship to do my PhD. Um, and, um, you know, I got good grades and all that stuff. <laughs> so, I, but, but I think at the core of it was this acceptance. It was this... Um, I had to see myself as someone who was smart. I had to see myself as someone who could contribute. And so that's, I think, is when I'm thinking about my vocational journey, part of the reason I say, I start by saying, oh God, is because so much of that was, was my own ideology of myself and being like, I am smart. I do have ideas that actually should be put into the world. I can make a difference. <laughs> like, it, yeah. and it was. Like, I remember moments just realizing this, like, wow, I can really do some good in the world in ways in which I never thought. Um, and so because of that, my interest has always been in, in connecting people, working with people and, and working across difference, particularly racial difference. And so I spent a great deal of my work focusing on racism with respect to environmental justice, food justice, um, and within congregations. Um, and so, um, I just took my, my curiosities and my passions and applied them to this kind of theoretical degree, really. I mean, I have a degree in, in philosophy and ethics, and I've always worked in a church in the midst of even doing my degree. I've always, and so I was always taking what I learned in the classroom and putting it into practice and making those in conversation with each other. And um, it was challenging, but at the same time, very rewarding. I feel like it's maybe, I, I know it's maybe a better scholar. Um, and so, 
that's kind of a that's more or less my journey that I, I would yeah. say that's kind of led me to the work that I do and and um I've just been really fortunate to um when opportunities presented themselves I was prepared to take advantage of them you know um I busted my yeah. behind um in grad school to make sure that I was uh I guess the last thing I should say is for me going to school and I don't know if this was for, for your sake or how your parents felt about this but going to college was if you're going to go to college you have to be help you get a job so it wasn't like, let me go to college to get some kind of personal self-fulfillment. It wasn't about any of that. It was like, if you're going to school, you need to get a job. It needs to seemingly be worth it. because Otherwise, you can just get a job now, right? You know, right. and so I've always thought like that. Even in finishing my PhD, it was very much, okay, I'm either going to be a clergy person, higher ed, administration, or teacher. And so everything I was doing was lining myself up to get one of those paths. I wasn't like, I have to do this. I was like, no, I can serve. I can fulfill my calling to... And for me, I would say my calling really is to teach and to heal. I can do that in multiple ways. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my path, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, my dad um, actually went back to school when he was 40 to become a physical therapist. Um, he played college football, um, got a, you know, his education paid for at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and got a business degree and, you know, was doing all of that and um had just kind of been in and out of different jobs and finally you know as we say in my family how to come to jesus uh you know conversation with my mom and um and it was like we're i'm either gonna do this now he'd always had that you know desire kind of draw to that but it had never felt like the right time and they discerned together that it was you know kind of now or never and so I was 11 when that journey for him began. Um, uh, he had to get prerequisites and all that. So I, my brother and I actually grew up with this, like, it would be great if y'all could figure out like what your true, you know, like passion and calling is now so that you don't have to like, you know, kind of start over again when you're 40, you know? And, and so that was the interesting, um, kind of you know message that we got um just you know a lot of encouragement to to do you know to to the extent that we could um some of that discernment and and um figuring some things out you know earlier on um which you should tell your dad you should tell your dad though <laughs> so i made the dis i was deciding between pursuing a degree in physical therapy or getting my degree and I actually got it in business administration, but I minored in okay. religion. But I knew because I thought, okay, because I was still kind of playing with this call to religion call called ministry. I was like, well, just in case I'm wrong about this call, I've got to have something else as a backup. So I'm a minor in religion, but I was trying to decide between going to Michigan State and get a degree in physical therapy and, and then going to pursue that because it, it's because of sports. Like I totally see yeah. like it's a part of my identity and so i totally yeah. see how your dad was drawn to it so you could tell, so i get it so that's awesome yeah that's, that's so cool to hear about your dad yeah and you know mom mom's a school teacher um taught you know american history and english for years and um worked extra jobs while he was going to school and all that and um you know and again being 11 it was very formative for me um very much aware <laughs> and awake of, of uh, all of that was going on. And, um, but yeah, he, he got that degree and he 
you know, has been able to really do what he loves for a large part, you know? And so now that I'm 38 and almost, you know, 40 and thinking, I mean, I, I think about that a lot and I think that, you know, yeah, I kind of have vocationally danced in many spaces, but there, the thread has been there all along for me of, um, I mean, I think you said, you know, teaching and healing, um, is for you. And, um, for me, the word healing comes up as well. Like, what does it look like to, to meet people in spaces of healing? Um, and that has, and thank goodness, right. Healing can happen in the classroom. Um, in a yoga studio, in a church, <laughs> um, in our homes, hopefully, you know, I mean, it, it, it is a transcendent, um, work of the spirit. So yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Um, so, you know, we're here, um, uh, this podcast episode, full disclosure, won't air until probably April. Um, so we'll be four months into, 2021, but I am curious just to hear from you as 2020 comes to a close. Um, what, what has it been like? What, what are you feeling? Um, and, and what are you looking forward to? I think that, you know, this year has been Um, revelatory, I think is the word I would use. And I think that's kind of building on the conversation we had earlier. Um, I have realized my own, um, how, how I had set my life up, I think to be very dependent upon, um, I shouldn't say dependent upon, but how I have to reorganize things to prioritize my family in ways I hadn't always thought um and the difficult part for me is there's a, a probably the part of me that's still got some kind of patriarchal ideal about manhood in my head i was been very committed to financially being able to support my family and some of that comes also from growing up poor and financial security really matters to me like really matters to me <laughs> because i know what it's like to be deeply financially insecure and i'm like i don't ever want to be like that um and so what, what i've learned throughout 2020 um, is the consequence of doing too much and not giving yourself space to just relax and be. Um, and that's an inter- and and and, the re- and it's interesting because so many people are are now struggling with employment and struggling with all those things. And I don't want to belittle that because that totally matters. So many people in my family also struggled with it in the beginning, and people are back to work now in various industries. Some of my family was at, are quote unquote essential workers and they've been working a long time. But for me, as a consequence of the uh, murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Beyonce Taylor and so many others, my work in racial justice and anti-racism training just like shot through the roof. And I have been super busy with that in addition to the work that I do as a professor, in addition to the work that I do just as a scholar, right? The writing and all the other stuff that I'm trying to get done. And so, um, and of course, 
in my head, I'm thinking, well, this is stuff I have to do. This is so I need to, and people are interested. Now, this is, I have to take advantage of this moment, right? How, when am I going to have all these white people asking me to help them not be racist? I'm like, this actually matters, <laughs> you know? And so in my head, I'm like, I have to do this. And, yeah. and, and, I, and I am, but at, at, at what's, what it, the cost has been just um, exhaustion, like days where I'm just exhausted, um, not spending as much time with my family as I think I, I know I should have. And realizing how much I need to um, take some time away and give myself a break. And so um, this has been a year uh, that has revealed the workaholic tendencies that I have and how it can actually harm me um, in ways that I hadn't thought about. Um, there's an excellent podcast by this uh, called Code Switch, AMPR. And they have an episode that I would highly recommend anyone, everyone to listen to. It's called um, This Racism is Killing Me. And it's about this research done, well, the second part of the podcast, second half of the podcast. Basically, it's about how racism actually has a, impacts BIPOC folks internally. How it literally causes us to stay in fight or flight mode and literally what they call epigenetics. Like literally kills us from the inside out. So all these things that people were, were the doctors have been attributing to like poor diet or environmental pollution, they're now realizing that that's a part of it. But also a part of it is the fact that our bodies are constantly reactive because we live in a racist world, mm-hmm. right? And it's, 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 it's depleting our T cells and these other things we have to have in our bodies that allow us to live. And that goes across all, even if you have money, that goes across all class dimensions. And I listen to this podcast and I like am crying because I realized I'm like, this is how it gave me words to describe how I feel the anxiety that I feel inside. Even when I'm doing my anti-racism training, because usually there's some people in there that want to be in there, but they really are struggling with their own. They're struggling not centering whiteness. <laughs> and so and so that brings up all kinds of stuff in me. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I've had to realize that. Um, this will be the last year that I will do this and uh, like this work like this, that I have to really be okay with um, working less and recognizing that I'm still making an impact. There's only so much I can do. And that when I have my sabbatical, I have a sabbatical um, in guidelines 2022 um, that I need to actually sabbatical, uh, you know, and just not, you know, do anything. Uh, So, so yeah, it's it's a hard lesson, I think, actually, um, but it's been an important one. Yeah. Is there anything you're looking forward to? Um, I'm looking forward to this vaccine, man. That's right. this vaccine. You know, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to taking my son back to the beach and oh. to and, and playing. You know, like uh, like taking him to the children's museum and let them run around, right. like. You know, me personally, like, I'm fine, you know, like, I'm, I, but I feel really bad that he can't, like, you know, um, play with other kids, you know, because I'm, like, worried about what's going to happen. You know, yeah. I think I'm just looking forward to like, him being able to experience, like, I mean, he's only, again, he's on one and a half. So, like, he's, he doesn't know any better. I think he's going to be fine, but this has still just been... It's been really hard on kids. Like I'm, I'm, you know, it's been hard on my my undergraduate students. And so I guess yeah. I'm looking forward to is for them, even though I want it for myself too. I'm looking forward for them to get back to being able to experience life in a way that 
isn't so traumatic. Yeah. My husband reminded me the other night that the the pandemic has aged all of us and that includes our children. And I really, I mean, I spent some time grieving that and I mean, still am, um, but actively just, I was just crying thinking about my five-year-old in particular um, in the ways that I can see that he's aged in a way that is, doesn't feel, um, I guess, as, as normal or as, you know, developmentally um, what would happen. And I think, I mean, even as careful as we can be about what we talk about and all of that, I mean, it's in the air, you know, <laughs> quite literally, but you know, the, the grief, the, the trauma, um, and they absorb it. And, um, and yeah, I, I too look forward to him being able to play with his friends without a mask on, um, or at least, yeah, in some kind of more free, less restricted way, um, would be really lovely. So, yeah. That's odd. No, I've gotten to this point. And I, I mean, when you, it's so funny because when you asked me that question, the first thing I thought about was what I, I, what Isaiah could do. It wasn't even about me. Like, I'm looking forward to stuff for him. Like, yes. you know, um, and maybe that's a sign of being a parent, you know, or just a sign of just, I don't know, maybe have being responsible for other people. But yeah, um, I still, I, I like, I mean, there, again, there are things that I, I, I'm happy about um, and be like, oh, this would be great. But I think I just think there's so many others who are dealing with so much more, even just in my own house. So, so tell us about your uh, work called Racial Resilience. Uh, what is it? How was it born? Um, what's your involvement with it now? Tell us more about that. Yeah, so that um, Racial Resilience is a anti-racism um, like training seminar uh that combines some of the core insights from uh spiritual formation and contemplative practices and various critical race theories um basically we use contemplative practices to get people in a space to learn critical race theories and how we embody racism and how it sh or yeah really embody racism and embody racism and how that shapes us as people. And so um, it's a novel approach. Uh, it's, it, it, because we, we talk about, we talk a lot about structural racism, but we talk about structural racism. Our entry point to addressing structural racism is with ideologies and the ideas that we have that allow us to normalize racist attitudes, thoughts, and policies um, and, and racist economic practices, right? Um, and what we found that is that one of the um, shortcomings, I would say, of traditional anti-racism training programs is that they tell people, particularly white people, to, like, this is, this is how racism works. Don't be racist, <laughs> basically. Right. And I think the weakness of that approach is when you talk about race, all kinds of stuff comes up. All kinds of identities comes up, all kinds of emotional stuff. And they're like, okay, that stuff's going to come up, but you need to deal with it. That's true. And what we try to do is give people tools to deal with it. So because it, it doesn't just come up once. It comes up 
over and over and over again. And so you need to have tools to deal with it so that when it does come up and you are perhaps in administration or any kind of leadership position or you're crafting policies about stuff, you can notice it, first of all, that, oh, I just had kind of a racist thought or this thing was racist or whatever. And you can move towards doing something about it without holding yourself, without shaming yourself um, and, and, and all the other stuff that comes up when we realize we've done something racist because we all do it. We believe, Seth and I, my, my, my co-creator, we believe racism is normal. And so it's not like, um, like you don't have to be ashamed. You, you don't have to be ashamed of doing something. You have to acknowledge it, own it, and have compassion for yourself, and say this is something I'm not going to do again, and, and, and move forward, and learn, and grow from it. Um, and I think that is a crucial aspect of, of what we teach um, is a kind of grounded awareness of the realities of race and how they shape us, and how we in turn can reshape policies um, to dismantle structural racism um the idea i guess i should say it was born from my inadvertent application of contemplative practices dealing with racial microaggressions so my my expertise is in um ethics and race and Mm -hmm. uh, seth uh seth shane who's my uh, co-creator his expertise in spiritual formation and I happened to tell him one day um, after I had dealt with some racism on a trip, um, like someone was being racist and I was in the room and I realized that I had, um, out of all my peers who were experiencing this racial, I don't even call it micro, like macroaggression from this one person, um, they were all really reactive. And I found myself just responding very differently. Not that I was less offended, but that in that moment, I knew this person I was being racist towards this I was like, well, I'm going to tend to that, what he's, my feelings about what he's doing later, but we're trying to learn something from him and learn, cause it was, it was about a grant and it was a person who had some money that we all kind of needed. And I was like, well, I would like to focus on how to get this grant money first and then deal with his racism later. Cause he's not the first nor the last white man that's going to say something racist. <laughs> that's kind of, right. you know? And so I realized in the midst of doing this, I was like, oh wow, I'm using my, my contemporary practices to set this aside, to come back to it and, and, and to attend to it in a, mm-hmm. in a way I hadn't really, I, it was doing it like automatically, right? Um, and, and so I told Seth when I got back from this trip, I was like, this is crazy. I was, I found myself using these kind of practices to deal with racism. Dude, oh, well, like that's all I did. I just left it. And yeah. it was, then he called me later that night and was like, this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> we probably should talk more about this. And so he helped me kind of talk about my experience when I did and then he added a bunch of stuff to it because Again, his expertise is in spiritual formation and contemplative practices. And um, so that's kind of how it's been born. And, and, and we've added to it and revised it and been crafting it and honing it. And now we've got to a point where it's gotten pretty, um, it's kind of, I guess, as the kids would say, or I don't even know if kids would say that old people, people my age would say it's blowed up, right? Like we're now we're mm-hmm. busy doing all these trainings. Uh, but it's been really, really cool because I think, Fundamentally, our approach is about humanizing people. And so that's, that's a different kind of approach when you talk about racism. Because so often when somebody does something racist, we want to dehumanize them because it makes us feel good. And when I say, oh, you're racist, so you have to be fired, you have to do those other kind of stuff. But when you realize how much stuff we do that is racist, that basically would mean everybody's going to be fired. <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of what we yeah. teach. I was like, well, this approach of taking to its logical conclusion, not only is it inconsistent with Christian teaching, right? That's the first thing we would say, like, you know, if we're talking to a religious group, 
because we're not treating others as we want to be treated, right? We're not extending them um, the path of reconciliation. We're not doing any of that. We're just shaming them. So, but that the flaw in that is if you dehumanize someone, you are basically tacitly saying that dehumanization as an approach is, is okay. That's acceptable. And I don't, it's not, it's not for us. It's, it's yeah. not um, for the gospel. It's not for people of faith. So um, yeah. So that, that's how, how, it, how it came about and kind of what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's such a um, temptation to, to cancel people and you know we talk about cancel culture and everything um and in my view because on the surface that seems easier if we can just you know see you later you did a bad thing or you said a bad thing or you know whatever it is and sort of and kind of keeps it up here you know again at this very like surface level um but in my experience when i can hang with going beyond my desire to cut someone or something or whatever out of my life I, and actually see them as a human I'm better able to name <laughs> exactly what it is that really gets me about what it is that they said or did or or maybe a whole pattern right a whole a whole system um that is being upheld that makes me sick to my stomach. Um, and in that naming and that identifying, then we can, I feel like get closer to some kind of accountability or, or some kind of like, Hey, this isn't cool with me, you know, <laughs> and, and can be really specific. I mean, Brene Brown's not the first to say this, but she has, you know, resurfaced it, but clear is kind. Like, as clear as we can be like this is not cool and this is why and you know and move move beyond that but um but that kind know, of clarity is so it's important it's difficult because sometimes we don't take the time to figure out what it is within us that's being reactive right we just react yeah. and let me pause <laughs> figure out what's going on in me first so that i could actually intentionally be clear i don't think people are doing this and i don't think people are intentionally trying to um uh you know cloud what it is that they're saying or not not i guess i should say not be clear i think it happens because we have been taught to react or we immediately think it's important to react rather than um sitting there and okay and discerning what's going on within me and again this is why i say compassion is so important because you know we need self-compassion to, to actually, when we do something racist or if we experience racism, right, you need to actually be able to do some self-healing um, so that that's crucial. And we have to have compassion for others. That allows us, to, it, it, it shapes the, um, the, 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 the approach, the, 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 the way we're going to engage someone, right? Um, and it allows us to see them as a, not only as, as, as a human, but it allows us to be, again, open to them. And people just receive it differently like i've seen you know um i've seen the just some of the most profound changes in people when they when they when what we do clicks with them when they allow themselves people of color for instance when they allow themselves to grieve their wounds i had one of our participants her mother she's japanese her mother's family was interned she wasn't interned 
Um, her mother wasn't interned, but her mother's family was interned. She was like sent, uh, actually, no, I take that back. Her mother was interned. I'm sorry. Um, but her mother was young and interned. Mm-hmm. And so um, because of this, um, her mother had a lot of shame and guilt around being Japanese and what that actually meant and all that stuff and went on to school when she got older and studied like French studies and British literature studies and totally dismissed Japanese history and culture and was like, didn't think they had to offer, didn't think I offered anything. And it wasn't until she was, her mother was in her sixties that she could begin to kind of peel back the layers of why she had dismissed so much of her own culture and see that I was wrapped up in this idea of what it meant to be seen as a human being and to be seen as a good American and patriot and all that stuff that was wrapped up in racism. And so the person's telling the story, right, about her mom. And she just, uh, and because we're, we're talking about the white racial frame and other things about how we mm-hmm. are taught to project whiteness as a way to be accepted as people of color and how white people have, are taught to project a certain kind of whiteness to be accepted. And you can see this moment for her where it clicks. She's like, oh my gosh, this is what, my, this, this is what happened to my mother. And she starts to cry. And it's like the most profound kind of moment to witness it and to be like, wow, and to hold that space for her. And, to, and also she talks about how she talked about later, how the tools that we had taught her about self-compassion were so helpful for her to, to name something she hadn't quite been able to name in a vulnerable space like that, knowing that and know that she could do something with that stuff that came up, right? It wasn't just like um, she thought that perhaps she was able to surface that stuff because she knew she had the tools to attend to it. So that to me is the kind of radical thing that we're trying to do, right? And with, with, with people of color, right? So, so often people of color think, well, I, I don't need this kind of anti-racism training. I was like, I think we actually all need to learn and realize how we've internalized a lot of racism um, and, and what it means to, to heal from that and, and to give space to others to do the same. Um, so it, it's, been, um, it's been awesome and exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesomely exhausting, I guess that's yeah. what it's saying. You said you said twenty twenty two, you get a sabbatical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get um so next year, so twenty so the fall of twenty twenty one, spring of twenty twenty two, so next year is my um last year in the classroom, and then I get a year off. Um mm-hmm. and so I'm we're um trying to figure out what to do uh, yeah. in terms of if we're gonna go somewhere, do some research, or if I'm just gonna stay here or and by and for me that is like relaxing, like going somewhere and having time to read a book. Like <laughs> I was like, that sounds awesome, man. I was like, I'm like, I'm like, man, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go and read. I'm like, that sounds amazing. I I love to read. So uh, so yeah, yeah the things I do for pleasure, uh, I don't think uh, normal people do, but that's kind of part of the gig when you get a PhD. You're a little bit right. something about you is a little bit off, right. <laughs> No, no more people don't put themselves in this torture. That's what I tell. No, no people don't do it. So there's something with me that I know kind of just is just off, and that's okay. I appreciate that about myself. Yeah. So, what's your definition of spiritual formation, and how does spiritual formation connect with justice? Man, that's such a great question because I think for me, um, spiritual formation at its core is about like growth and transformation. Um, that's that's kind of how, how I've always seen it. Um, it kind of, and, and, and the way, the only way I see that kind of taking place is through kind of the formation piece for me is the education, right? The things you, who are you reading? What are you reading? What are you learning? 
Um, and the spiritual piece comes for me, not only in reading, but your community, who are you surrounding yourself with that's actually nurturing you through this process. Um, and so I am deeply committed to creating spaces within my classrooms and in my churches when I'm, when I was a pastor, and when I've been assistant pastors that I would say are much more aligned with the kind of spiritual formation approach where I see people as full human beings not as like receptacles for me to just pour out my knowledge into them. Right. Where I'm just like, no, you're going to bring all yourself to this sacred space, whether it's the classroom, which I would never say out loud to many of my students is a sacred space. Cause I'm even though I'm at a private school, but to me, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or, 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 or a church. Right. So you're bringing your whole self to that space. Um, and then you're engaging in practices that encourage you to, to grow or transform. And what I would say is, develop it to a closer approximation of what it, of, of what it means to be human. Um, and, and so for me, um, that's in alignment with modeling yourself after Jesus. And so I'm very much United Methodist when it comes to the notion of Christian perfection. Like that is something Wesley and I kind of, uh, I can, I really uh, draw from and appreciate because I, I see it as a process of maturing and growing in who we are as people of faith um, and, and how we go about living our lives as uh, people of faith. Um, and so for me, it's, it's connected to justice because I think that's just, that's who we are called to be in the world as Christians. Um, so I guess I can't see it not connected to justice. Um, if you recognize that spiritual formation doesn't stop with you. I think the people who I see that have a hard time making that connection have a very individualistic understanding of spiritual formation, right? Mm. Mm. When I think about the spirituality of Jesus and, and, and what I go back to, um, first, I should also clarify, I, while I'm very much a Christian, I would say I align my spirituality more closely to Howard Thurman in, in what he calls the religion of Jesus. That's kind of basically makes sense to me and kind of what I follow. Um, uh, give me Sorry, somebody. I don't know if you could even hear that. Could you hear that ringing? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Somebody's calling. And I was like, um, so for me, the religion of Jesus has been like, and that kind of understanding that Thurman talks about in Jesus and disinherited has been crucial in my own development of my spirituality because it centralizes the core message of the gospel without, um, in, in, in a way that I think gives us something we should aim for, right? In terms of embodying this way of being in the world. And so I can't, when I see Jesus, when I read about Jesus in the gospel, I see this person who is deeply in community, in relationships with people who are poor and margin, marginalized and people who are suffering and also trying to extend relationships to others, right? To tax collectors who clearly aren't suffering, right? They got money to Roman guards, to these other people, right? So it's not just poor people, it's all people, right? Um, even though he prioritizes helping those who are in need. And, and so I see, when I think about formation, I'm like, well, I'm supposed to be trying to live like this. How can I embody this way of being in the world? Um, how can I um, follow this kind of, of, of path? And, and it has to result in action. It can't just end up being this kind of, I do it for myself because it makes me feel good. I do these practices. I pray. I do it because it makes me feel good. Um, it does deepen something within me that allows me to feel connected to my truer sense of self. 
But what that does is push me towards others, right? To helping others, to being that kind of healer um, that I discussed um, because I think our faith is best expressed in community. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you have a blessing or scripture or story, poem, something that you might offer as we close our time together today. So I, I think when I thought about what I would say, um, to kind of wrap things up, I think that what came to mind, as I, as I mentioned, um, Thurman and the importance of Thurman on me in, in my life and how um, it's helped me kind of make sense of my own spirituality um, using a lot of his words. And one thing he says in his autobiography I thought was really powerful um, he's like, you know, it's um, things in Christianity and the religion. He's like, it's in the religion because it's true. It's not true because it's in the religion. And I and and it sounds it's like one of those little things. When I first read it, I was like, oh man, this there's a lot here. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, and so uh, I, I, I and I what, it, what happens is I read books now because after I read Isaiah to sleep to take his naps and 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 at night to bed. Um, so that's what I do all this reading. So Isaiah's reading all kinds of philosophy and theology. I read it. To, he doesn't know any difference. I'm like, I hope yeah. it's seeping into his brain. Right. And so, so after I put him down, I go back and I reread that section and it really what resonated with me, this, this idea that the truths that we find in here, they're not true because, you know, we think Jesus said it, or we believe Paul said it, you know, these are things that are deep truths that reach beyond our own small segment of what we might call religion right um that it that it it, it stretches and connects all of us and like binds us all together you know this kind of interconnectedness so to speak and that for me has just been so powerful um to help me realize how especially in the midst of this pandemic you know how we are all deeply interconnected and, yeah. and how we can look to and learn from others, not only spiritualities and spiritual practices, but just learn from the way they are in the world. Um, that has always, that, that has stayed with me since I read it this summer. And because I mean, it literally it's something I, I read this summer um, and it continues to shape how I interact with people of various kinds of faiths and faith traditions and also people within Christianity. It really has helped me um, come to grips with, some of my own beliefs and how I want to discuss and talk about those beliefs. Yeah. Say it for us one more time. Yeah. So uh, I should have, wish I had the page number. I'm sorry. I forgot about it, but it's in his autobiography. Um, but what he says is that uh, it's in, it, it, it's, in, it's, it's in the religion because it's true. It's not true because it's in the religion, mm. you know, and, and I think all too often we can read especially different Pauline epistles <laughs> in the New Testament and talk about what we mean, we talk about truth. And, and I think about how those stories and passages were weaponized to 
justify the genocide of indigenous folks and the enslavement of black folks and the oppression of women and the disregarding of people who are disabled, right? As not full human beings. And so our, that for me has been part of the reason why that's, that, that, that's, that's powerful is because it, it gives me that kind of important hermeneutic with which to read the gospel and read the Bible from. Um, and, and I think that is crucial. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw this, um, but the Southern Baptist um, presidents just signed some document stating that they don't basically, they kind of disavowing critical race theory, um, you know, trying to go along with the stuff that no. Trump was saying um, oh. in terms of him saying that it creates separation. And one of the things that one of the, the president of this organization said was the, the Bible teaches us the things that we need to know, um, all that we need to know about man. So super sexist, right? Even I, I phrase it. And that no secular ideology can help us understand racism. And I thought to myself, you know, there's so much that in so many ways people have used the Bible to harm people. Mm-hmm. And to say that, especially the Southern Baptist Church, that is all wrapped up in historical concepts of slavery and racism, right? And, and, and Ku Klux Klanism, right? Yeah. It, it, it disregards the, the it, 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 it doesn't take serious the ways in which people can take things out of the Bible and, and weaponize them to harm people. And so Thurman's quote for me is, is an important hermeneutic. Um, with which to read the Bible to say, okay, where, what, what, what truth, where's truth in here that I think actually is truth that isn't limited to my own time and my own place or my own race or my own separate set of powers, right? Um, but truth that I think actually connects us and binds us all together in the ways in which, you know, we, we read about and, and, and hope about and dream about in the biblical text. Thanks for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy Resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. And if you have questions about the work of anti-racism or about this particular podcast episode, please email us at academy at upperroom.org. The work of love and justice begs of us to stand our sacred ground, to open ourselves to change, and to deeply trust in the God who marches, dances, listens, learns, and sings along with us. Thanks for being a part of this life-changing work. We're grateful you're here, and we hope you'll stay with us for the long haul. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, and to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org.